0: You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. On October 21st, 1981, some hunters were in the area of an old dumping ground and landfill that was no longer in use, located on Highway 249 in the tiny town of Pegram, Tennessee. They found what appeared to be a partial human skeleton. The largely skeletonized remains, which had no clothing and no identification, were sent to University of Tennessee, Knoxville, anthropologist Dr. William Bass. He determined the remains belonged to a teenage female with straight brown hair. Dr. Bass told the media he guessed her age to be 16 or 17, but the publicized age range was 14 to 17. He estimated she had been dead for between four and nine months, and most likely had died sometime between January and August of 1981. Two species of beetles found inside her skull were lived primarily during the summer months from May to July. That knowledge helped inform the date of death estimate. No cause of death could be determined. Dr. Base wasn't even able to determine height and weight. This was because the body wasn't completely intact. The arms were missing. So were the legs below the mid-thigh region and one of the hip bones, the left. The remains bore signs of dog or coyote teeth marks, and Dr. Bates posited that the arms and hip bone could have been carried away by animal predation. But the legs were a different story. They had been sawed off just above the knees, as evidenced by tool marks on the femurs. This was, quote, near the time of death. Dr. Bass said, quote, the legs were cut off smooth enough for it to have been done with a saw, end quote. Police searched the area where the body was found, hoping to find the remaining limbs, with no luck. Because there were no arms, no fingerprints were available. Missing persons reports and corresponding dental records were thoroughly checked by the Cheatham County District Attorney's Office. The body did have some distinctive dental work that might help identify her, it was thought. This entailed the first molar on the upper right side of the jaw, which had a small filling, and one of the molars on the lower left, which had a much larger filling. The Doe Network description of Cheatham Jane Doe says, quote, crossbite on left side, filling present, poor dental care for some time prior to death, end quote. She was nicknamed Cheatham Jane Doe after all the investigative avenues failed to identify her. I'm not certain whether Cheatham Jane Doe was buried, but in 2007, The University of Tennessee Forensic Anthropology Center submitted a sample of her remains to the University of North Texas Center for Human Identification. They were able to develop an STR DNA profile and enter it into CODIS, into the Unidentified Human Remains Database. There were no matches. Next, chemical isotope testing was conducted to try to determine Cheatham-Jane Doe's geographical origins. The testing showed she wasn't from Tennessee, but rather was likely from southern Florida or central Texas, and had spent some formative years in the Midwest. They believed she might have been a transient who had come to the Cheatham area via hitchhiking. While the isotope testing would turn out to be all wrong. Cheatham Jane Doe was entered into NamUs in 2007 as UP-1582, and this gave rise to several rule-outs over the years— thanks to possible matches brought to the attention of law enforcement by armchair sleuths. According to her NamUs page, as of July 2021, there had been at least 25 exclusions. Several facial reconstructions were produced by Nick Meck, the University of South Florida, and Joanna Hughes, the first person to hold a B.A. in forensic art. But these led nowhere. In 2018, Cheatham Jane Doe was featured in an exhibition of reconstructions and drawings of several John and Jane Doe's put on by the University of South Florida's Institute of Forensic Anthropology and Applied Science. That, too, led nowhere. In 2022, the Tennessee legislature allotted $100,000 for specialized forensic genealogy testing on unidentified human remains located in the state. This generated the TBI Criminal Investigation Division's UHR DNA initiative. The TBI designated 14 cases to commence the program and sent 10 of the sets of remains to Othram for DNA extraction and sequencing. One of these was Cheatham Jane Doe. The TBI submitted some of her remains to Othram to prepare a SNP profile and undertake forensic genealogy. Authorum provided some information on the Jane Doe's DNA relatives to the TBI, who was able to flesh out Cheatham Jane Doe's trees and locate some potential relatives in Florida and central Tennessee. TBI special agents contacted these family members and learned that they indeed had a relative who had not been in contact for more than 40 years. A DNA standard from one of these suspected family members showed that the theory was correct. She was Linda Sue Carnes from Clarksville, Tennessee. She was 15 when she was last known to be living. Once they had her name, they were able to learn her background. Linda was born on August 10, 1965. She was from Cleveland but grew up in Cunningham, Tennessee. Her father was Richard Warren Carnes Sr. He died in 2001. Her mother was Patricia May Slobig Carnes of Berwick, Pennsylvania, who died in 2005. Richard and Patricia married in Tennessee in February of 1963. I don't know what happened to their marriage, but after Linda and her brother Ricky were born, Patricia ended up in California. It doesn't appear that she had any further contact with her children, Linda and Ricky. Her ex-husband Richard got remarried in 1987 in Robertson, Tennessee. So we don't know what happened to Patricia and Richard's marriage or why neither of them kept their children. Richard was in the Army, and when they were married, he was stationed at Fort Riley in Kansas. But at some point very soon thereafter, it appears that Linda and Ricky were split up and sent to live with different relatives. Linda was sent to live with her father, Richard's grandmother, Elsie Carnes. Elsie was Linda's great-grandmother. It's amazing what the local papers printed back in the day. The Leaf Chronicle of Clarksville, Tennessee, on March 16, 1967, says, quote, Little Linda Sue Carnes of Cleveland is making her home with her great-grandmother, Miss Elsie Carnes. Linda was not even two years old. There are newspaper mentions throughout 1967 and 1968 of Carnes' family celebrations and reunions, with Elsie and Linda traveling to visit relatives and having visits from relatives. By 1970, Elsie and Linda were living in Shiloh. They continued to live together for years. Thanks to local coverage by the Leaf Chronicle, we have little glimpses into Linda's life, such as Elsie and Linda attended church services together in April 1973. In 1975, Linda was sick for a few days. In 1977, at age 12, she showed chickens as part of her 4-H Club membership duties. According to information gleaned from the local papers, Elsie's health started to fail in 1978. In August of that year, she was in the hospital. She was listed as an inpatient at Trinity Hospital in May of 1979 as well. By 1980, she was in a Cunningham, Tennessee, nursing home. She resided there until she died in 1985 at age 87. Elsie sold her property to a relative in May 1981 and received visits from several women at Palmyra Nursing Home throughout 1981. Given what we know about Linda's likely date of death in early 1981, these visitors were not Linda. It's unclear why Elsie never raised the issue of Linda or where she was. Maybe she did, and the family believed she had run away and lost touch with everyone. They might have believed this because Linda had been placed in a group home, the Montgomery County Girls' Home in Clarksville, Tennessee. We don't know exactly when she was placed there or why, but I think we can make an educated guess that when Elsie's health began to fail, she could no longer care for young teenage Linda. It's unclear whether Linda was sent to the girls' home because she was a troublemaker or whether there were simply no relatives who would take Linda in. This seems unlikely given the sheer size of Elsie's family. Elsie was born in 1897 and married Thurman Brady Carnes. They had at least four and possibly six children. One of their sons, Bruce, was the father of Richard Carnes, Linda's father. Richard, by the way, was still alive when his daughter was sent to the Montgomery County Girls' Home. Not only was he living, but by the time she died, Elsie had 22 grandchildren, 30 great-grandchildren, and 22 great-great-grandchildren. It's kind of hard to believe that none of these people would take Linda in. The Montgomery County Girls' Home received extensive coverage in the Leaf Chronicle. A 1980 article on the girls' home says it had been established in 1976 for girls who want help. The Department of Human Resources sent girls there who were in trouble at school, drinking, truant, or at odds with their parents. As of 1980, there were 10 residents. Director Laura Jones called the residents, quote, my girls, and said, quote, we have a strong desire to help these kids. Most of them come here crying out for help. They need to talk. And they need affection, something terrible, quote. The home made it their mission to increase the self-esteem of their residents. They enacted rules and regulations the girls were expected to live by, and some of them had been living with no restrictions at home, so it was a tough adjustment. The girls were expected to do chores, study, and limit social activities. They did all the cleaning and washed their own clothes. In return, they received support, guidance, mutual respect, and affection. But Ms. Jones left because her husband was transferred out of state, and by September 1981, the Leaf Chronicle headline read, quote, fate of eight girls in county home depends on actions of community, end quote. The home was facing impending closure because they had to move out of their existing facilities, and no one in the community wanted a home for so-called wayward girls nearby. The article described five of the eight resident girls as status offenders, meaning they were sent there because they had problems with truancy, disobedience, or running away. Quote, the remaining three were sent there because of a family problem, which may include sexual abuse, alcoholic parents, or abandonment, End quote. Abandonment may very well have been the reason Linda Carnes ended up there. Significantly, the Montgomery County girls' home is mentioned in the police blotter column in the Leaf Chronicle on April 6, 1981. It was reported that a Juanito Crippen of the 6,000 block of Franklin Street reported to police that at 10.10 p.m. on April 4, four 15-year-old girls ran out of the home, leaving in a red Buick. Unfortunately, we don't know any more about this story, but Linda was 15 at the time. Was she one of the girls who escaped the Montgomery County girls' home and got into a red Buick? It's worth noting that the date, April 6, 1981, meshes with the time frame in which Dr. Bass, the anthropologist who examined Linda's remains back in 1981, placed her date of death. And the information released by Tennessee authorities about Linda includes that she ran away from the girls' home and was later found dead and partially dismembered. The question, of course, is who was driving the red Buick? But there are so many more questions. Why didn't anyone raise the alarm that Linda was missing? Someone at the girl's home should have reported it. And Linda's parents and custodial great-grandmother were all still alive. Why on earth did no one notice that she was gone? Then the unidentified remains of a teenage girl were found in October 1981, 45 miles away from Clarksville, where Linda Carnes had run away. Why on earth did no one put this together? A woman posted on Reddit recently that she had married into the Carnes family, and that her husband, M. Carnes, was contacted by the TBI in the summer of 2023 and informed that he was Linda's closest living relative. M. Carnes was a son of Linda's brother Ricky, whom I believe died in Florida. So, M. Carnes was Linda's nephew, The TBI asked him for a buckle swab in order to confirm the identification of Linda. He gave one, but unfortunately, he had never heard of his Aunt Linda. He never knew she existed. His mother had divorced his father, Ricky, and he wasn't in contact with his father, so he was uninformed about that side of his family. The Reddit poster said that Ricky's aunt contacted them a few years ago, and they went and visited her husband, M's great-aunt and uncle, at a family reunion of sorts. Many other family members were there, including Carnes' cousins, etc., but no one ever mentioned Linda. The TBI is asking for help in solving the murder of Linda Sue Carnes. Special Agent Brandon Elkins credited forensic genealogy for solving part of the puzzle by allowing them to identify Linda after 42 years. He said, quote, This technology allows us to time travel and be able to identify these people who gave them their names back, End quote. Anyone with details about Linda or what happened to her, please contact the TBI at 1-800-TBI-FIND. Recently, I let listeners know about a new benefit available to them called an Abjack Insider Subscription that's available through Apple Podcasts. An Abjack Insider Subscription will give listeners ad-free access to every bit of DNA ID content published, both past episodes and future episodes. It will also give you benefits like early access and bonus content. Head over to Apple Podcasts and click on the DNA ID show page or the Abject Entertainment channel to start a free trial. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, Visit the store at customizedgirl.com dot com slash s slash DNAID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNAIDpodcast at gmail dot com. Follow us on social media at DNAID podcast on Instagram, at DNAID podcast on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook dot com slash DNAID podcast. Finally. If you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.